Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein A Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein A Go-Go. You're listening to 3 Triple R. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with me, and I do mean in the studio, which I get to say rarely these days, is Dr. Ailey. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. It's so exciting to be in here. <laughs> she almost jumped out the microphone. Well, it's been, I think I've been in here once in like the last two years, pretty much, because I was on maternity leave before this whole, Are you, you know, yeah, yep. so, you know, I, it's been a long time. Yeah, can I just say that first part, that was self-imposed. So. <laughs> That's right. Well, that's true. Yeah, it wasn't our that's fault. true. Well, not that you no know, no one part of the show, as far as I know, was involved. With it anyway. <laughs> no, no. Uh, Dr. Linden, you're in the studio. Too. Yes. Good morning, Dr. Shane. I'm also super excited to be here. I think maybe maybe I've been here twice in the last eighteen months. Also, some self-imposed leave, and then some illness, and then yeah, it's uh, yeah. I'm excited. I'm a bit jittery. To yep. be honest, it's, look, it's it's all it's all good and fun and so forth until someone loses an eye. But um, it is great to have the two of you. you know, people listening, going, "Oh God, they get excited because they're in the studio again." Well, sorry, folks, but we do because it's been um, it's been a bit tough, and it's nice to see my colleagues in the studio. We have some really cool stuff on the show today. We've got a guest from Monash coming on. We've got a physicist from Melbourne coming on, also from Oxford. It'll be fun. But we're going to start off with some news from these two. Dr. Lynn and I just got the point from uh, Dr. Ailey that you're starting. Yes, Dr. Shane. It's nice to be in the studio to see you, but it's also lovely that we get to have a a conversation, you know, when we normally come in via Zoom to talk to you, it's, okay, start and then stop. Tell your story and then rack off the next person's got something to say. But Ailey and I thought it would be good to come in this morning and have a bit of a conversation because the big climate news this week He's making not just climate news, but news news is these devastating heat waves and now bushfires that are happening all across the western part of Canada. These numbers are just too big for us to ignore and they're too big for us to say, oh, geez, it's cold outside today, but look in Canada. No, that's not. That's not the start of the story that we're talking about today. We're talking about obscenely incredible, all the superlatives you can think of, heat records that have been broken across the western part of Canada. And Ailey, you were going to tell us a little bit about the setup. There's a few layers about how this event has rolled out, you know, and as climate scientists, we first look to, oh my goodness, how much have the numbers been broken by, you know? Uh, But we also have to think about the geography of this part of Western Canada and the northwestern part of the US and also the meteorology. So Ailey, tell us a bit about that. Yeah. So thanks, Dr. Linden. So look, just to start with a bit of context, and I know Dr. Linden's going to go into some, some stats in a minute, but just to put this into perspective, parts of Western Canada in the last few days were hotter than Melbourne on Black Saturday. So that's pretty insane to think about. Hotter than Melbourne on Black Saturday, parts of Western Canada. Jesus. Like, this is just insane. Yeah. And this is Western Canada is about... You know, 50, 50 yeah. degrees north, it's yep. like the same latitude as Prague or London. Yeah, London, exactly. So it's insane. So look, what the interesting thing about this, this event is it actually didn't start in Canada. It started some, around East Asia, just off the coast of Japan. Oh, wow. You can okay. say, what? Huh? Yep. How's that work? So the thing is, this uh, particular weather system is something that we call an omega block. We call it an omega block because uh, the weather pattern looks like the omega symbol, like the Greek letter omega, right? So that's the why we call it. Yes, a fancy fan- watch. Yes, <laughs> yes, that's right. It is a fancy watch too. <laughs> so it's time this one moved on. Anyway, so, uh, so this omega block basically started in East Asia. And what happens with these things when they form is that you get a whole bunch of big storm clouds and convection in one part of the world. And so this is bubbling along. Think of it kind of like, uh, you know, bubbles in a boiling pot, right? And think of those bubbles in a boiling pot, kind of like a reverse stone throw into water. What happens? You get ripples, you get waves, Mm -hmm. right? So these waves are caused by this, what we call convection, these bubbles in a pot, these vigorous storms. Although these weren't even that vigorous. But the point is that they were then channeled via the jet stream. Think of that kind of like the channel of a river and they amplified 
and they amplified and they amplified and almost like a cracking of a whip, you know, when you crack a whip, the wave, the pulse kind of goes down the whip. And what happens to the whip at the end? It rolls around and grabs something. Or also think of it like a breaking wave, like an ocean wave on the beach, right? It's exactly what's happened in the atmosphere. And so this thing is rolled around and broken and it's basically caused this really, really intense high-pressure system, this dome of hot air to sit over Western Canada and not budge. And it won't be moving for a little while either. And so what ends up happening is you get this, uh, you know, really clear skies. You get a lot of air falling down to the surface from the upper atmosphere in the middle of this block. It heats it as it falls and voila, you have a massive, massive heat wave. Yeah, so we've got the warm air. So you've got this high pressure system. So there's more air piling in and that air is sinking. And as it sinks, it compresses. You know, you've got the same amount of air molecules being mushed into a smaller space as it moves down through the atmosphere. So, you know, that's got extra heat as well. And then you have from the surface, you've got... um, hot country, dry country, the western part of Canada Mm. and northern part of the US is in a bit of a drought at the moment. And so then you've got air from the surface as well that's hot. That hot air wants to rise, but it can't rise because this air is sinking on top Mm. of it. So you just get this massive bulk of air that's been trapped. Yeah. Now, interestingly, in this part of the country, the mountains might be playing a little bit of a role as well, because any air that's coming in is kind of coming from the east. So it gets forced up over the mountains and down the other side. And of course, when it goes down, it compresses and warms mm. again, so you get kind of a bit of extra warming. Yeah. So, yeah, but this is – and these kind of blocks, these kind of high-pressure systems are not necessarily unusual, but what unusual with this one is just the sheer intensity of it um, and where it is. It's in a place that doesn't yeah. usually get this hot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So one town that's been in the news a lot this week is Lytton in uh, British Columbia, and that is a town that's in the Rocky Mountains. And it's actually known as one of the hottest places in Canada. Because of where it is, it's in a bit of a canyon, which means it kind of bakes and heat comes at it from all angles. And that mountain effect kind of traps the air in this little spot. But the the records that we've seen in Lytton in the last few days have been insane. Before last Sunday, there were no temperatures in Canada ever recorded above 45 degrees. Mm. And then on Monday, Lighton got to 46.6. And then on Tuesday, it got to 47.7. On Wednesday, it was 49.6. Australia's hottest record is in the low 50s. I think it's 50.7. It was recorded in Udna data in the 1960s so far. And then on Thursday, it burnt down. So this little town of about 250 people. Oh, right. Yeah. 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 It got, um, they had, I think, two hours worth Mm. of warning and then they they just had to, they had to run. Um, I don't know how much they saved. I don't think anyone's been back to the town yet. I tell you, doing research about this, this event and looking at the the Canadian um, Environment Canada webpage and looking at the maps, it's really flashed straight Mm. back to Black Summer for us, you know, seeing these towns, these places that are known as holiday destinations, Mm. that are famous for people for um, places that people can go just suddenly becoming yep. infernos yeah. and maps of red and holidays and summertime suddenly becoming, you know, yeah. scenes of terror rather than scenes yeah, of Yeah, and unfortunately they had, uh, I think it was a bit of a weak cold front come through very weak because it dropped the temperature to like, you know, the low 40s or something like <laughs> <Yep>. that. But <laughs> unfortunately what it did start was a whole bunch of dry thunderstorms. Right. So they got lightning. Yep. Uh, lightning breeds wildfires and up in that uh, area of the country, you know, it's all pine trees. Um, I used to live in Seattle and that area is entirely just full of fir trees yep. and spruce and they go up. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, so it's a pretty devastating incident. But really, yeah, crazy. Yeah, I know we have to wind up, Shane, but the third layer of this, of course, we've got this mm-hmm. weather system, we've got this unique geography of the place and then the next layer obviously is climate change and you know, the question isn't did climate change cause this, it's how much worse did climate change make this situation and how much more likely is this in the future. So the initial models, as I understand it, are being run by experts in the Northern Hemisphere now. I think they'll have some preliminary answers in the next week or so. With heat waves, the research suggests that there's no heat wave in the world now that isn't touched by climate change in some way and this event is so extreme, I think that they will find that that's unusual even looking into the future. Yeah, but right? the, yeah, no, absolutely. But I think that the biggest question we have at the moment is did climate change affect the meteorology of the heat wave itself yep. rather than just add, um, you know, a few extra degrees. So those, those are kind of open questions that we really don't know a lot about into the future. And yeah, watch this space. Yep. Scary stuff, um, especially for us here because we've seen 
how often this plays out multiple times. Exactly. And you can't imagine this is a one-off yeah. um, in Canada. So thank you both. Uh, we're going to take a break, folks, for some music, and we'll be back in just a moment with our first guest for today. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 Triple R. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Triple R. I'm Dr. Shane. It's a science show. If you uh, haven't worked it out, you're in a bit of trouble because you're 12 minutes in. On the line now, we have Professor Colby Zaff. He's the head of the Laboratory of Mucosal Immunity and Inflammation at Monash University and part of the Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology. Morning, Colby. How are you going? Very well, very well. Nice to have, nice to be here. Nice to see you. Hopefully one day in person, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. We'll get there at some stage, I think. Yeah. If you, if you, Im- immunity people get on top of this, you know, we can. Uh, is, can I blame well, you? I, I think no. I think I think I think we know who to blame. But um, uh, I think we've done all the. I think we've done all the hard yards of getting the getting the vaccine out there. It's just a matter of people taking it up, and I think that's the big the big thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you guys must find that frustrating when when the science. You know, I'm not going to say it doesn't count, but when the science. <sighs> is so far from resolving the problem it's it's designed to resolve. Yeah. No, I, th- I think the the fact that the matter is this vaccine that is is just is one of the it's probably the best vaccine they've ever des- developed in in the fastest time because because of money and we, I mean, we're going to talk a little bit about funding and and the way funding works in this world but this this just shows that money talks. If you put money at a problem, the mm. people in the world are smart enough to try things that's going to make it work and make it work fast and safe and really well. So I think it's a, yeah, it's, it's a real testament to, to the scientific community and the fundamental research that underlies everything that went into this to get it to the, to the world this fast and that quickly. And so, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And I suppose it also, you know, it's, it's that scenario where we've been doing fundamental research for quite a while in these fields and yeah. now we're reaping the rewards. So even when people, yeah. like, as you just said, you know, it's quick that we've got this result. But actually, the background to that result is decades. Absolutely, absolutely. I think that's the biggest. That's the, that's one of the hardest things to get across to people is that, you know, fundamental discoveries are the are the really the foundation for the for the clinical trials and all the fancy things you see in the news because it's twenty years of of hard yards in in, in animal models and in cell culture and getting those proof principles in there before it even touches the first patient and that that funding has to come from somewhere that that research has to be done by some people and it has to be paid by something and so that's that's really the the biggest disconnect is that the work that I do today might not ever see the light of day for 20 years until it actually gets into something. And that's a really hard, and it's hard to measure impacts um, for fundamental science early on. It, it, it's, you look back and you can say, oh, look at this. That was, it was obvious that was going to work. But when you're doing it, it's not that obvious. And you have to do that, that, those, that hard work. Yeah. Now, you and I uh, bumped into each other on Twitter because we were talking about grants and so forth. But just before we yeah. get onto that, your, your area of mucosal immunity, we're talking about yeah. snot immune systems, right? Is that, is that, well, or is I it think, more I think that? that's a, I like the word, I like using the word mucosal because it does, it, it brings that up. But really, a mucosal surface is sort of any surface that does produce mucus, but really, it's really the barrier tissues. Right. Um, not really the skin, but so the lungs, the gut, reproductive tract, places that where the inside world meets the outside world. And that's really where, our problems start when you're talking about infections or you're talking about um, food allergies, you're talking about any of these sort of things, asthma, allergies, that's where those, those worlds collide. Right. And Mm. so that you can imagine that that immune system has to be finely, finely tuned because you don't want it to respond to everything. So especially if things in the gut, like you've got all these microbes in there, you've got food coming in all the time and you don't want to respond to any of that. And so knowing the difference between what's danger and what's not danger and all, and uh, what's an infection and what's not an infection is really the black box of, of, of the immunology right now, because we don't really understand how it works, but we know that if it gets dysregulated, you get things like inflammatory bowel disease, you get food allergies, you get um, a lot of issues and asthma is one of the big ones and understanding what we're trying to do is understand just how those decisions are made, how a cell be- decides whether it's going to attack a pathogen or not attack a food antigen and those sort of decisions made at the molecular level inside the cells. Yeah. Yeah. How different is those components of our immune system when we go from say the inside of our nose, inside of our mouth, all the way down, as you say, to parts of the gut? I mean, presumably there's different responses, different cell types and so forth all the way down. Absolutely. So I I think that's, that's absolutely. So I think that's one of the things that's coming out of, uh, of research for the last sort of 10 years is this compartmentalization of the immune system, um, tissue versus non-tissue, 
the, the sites where the where the um, where the sort of the business end of the immune system has to act versus the other sites, um, and also the differences along along the say the mucosal tract from the from the nose from the throat all the way down there. It's a different world, and so different cells have to be in there. So you can imagine there's very different sort of se- separation of powers and separation of of immune cells throughout these these. These, these areas, and we still don't really understand what drives different cells to different areas, um, and how those cells react to those environments. So, really, tissue-specific um, responses, and and in different tissues, how those cells respond, and how they're maintained, how they look. What was we don't really understand it. So that's what we haven't even really harnessed that for things like vaccination. The mm-hmm. vaccines of pathogens that attack the lungs versus the gut or versus the skin might require different different vaccines. We've just been using one vaccine for everything and trying to understand how that works is something in the future that's definitely going to take advantage of us. Yeah, no, it's, it's certainly a complex scenario. Uh, let, let's talk about grants a little bit, um, yeah. Cole, because that, that's where you and I bumped into each other. Yeah. At, at the moment in Australia, and, and I want to hear your sort of views from your Canadian exp- you know, experience, yeah. which is, is very different. But in Australia, we have situations, and you know, apologies to any researchers listening, because this could be a little upsetting when you, when you hear the realities um, you know, voiced again. But you know, we have a situation where people are typically putting in applications that are around 100 pages in length, you know, getting almost no feedback on those applications. Nine months later, often are told, you know, no, you, you, I'm sorry, but your your career's over pretty much in some cases. Yeah. Um, you know, with some somewhere in the range of, you know, 7 to 20% success rates, depending on, on exactly what you're applying for. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I, mean, I know you have strong feelings about this as I do. Um, because of the the, the, just the sheer time waste involved yeah. in such a, a poorly sort of um, designed system, I mean, what what are your reflections on that, and in comparison to what you've seen in Canada? Yeah, so so I so I moved here from Canada in 2015, um, and so in Canada, it's it's because Canada is a very similar size, similar mm-hmm. sort of numbers of people, similar budget, um, and it's not. I, I'm not trying to say it's any better. It's not much better. But there are some things about Australia that I didn't realize before I got here about the way the system is, works here that really amazes me that it's so inefficient here that I, I can't imagine, like, there's so much good science that's being done here in the face of all of that sort of mm. struggle to get funding here. Um, and I think the, 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 it's just one of these things that it's just, it's an inherent thing in, the, in, in where you are if you don't get ex- other in, in environmental feedback from other countries, you just don't realize that it could be done differently. And I think that was one of the big problems. So when I got here, you got a three-year grant. And three years on a scientific time scale is nothing. Yeah. Like really, it goes by like this. And so, but being told you have to write a three-year grant, um, whereas rest of the world, at least most North America, it's all five-year grants. And five years is a decent amount of time. Um, it was just that was the first struggle because you get a grant, and then by the time you're almost ready to get started, you're, it's over, and then you've got to write another grant. And write again. I think that was one of the there's a lot of fatigue, and, and as you said, these grants are big. They've tried to streamline them, but they're not they're not still a lot of a lot of work, months of work, um, and then you submit it, and then there's absolutely now they've changed, and there was no feedback at all. Um, you get a ten percent success rate, so ninety percent of the people are failing, and then they get no feedback whatsoever, and so then when you go to resubmit that grant. You have no idea, and it doesn't get seen by the same people. It gets seen by different mm. people, and it's just, so it's a really vicious cycle. And so, so I think it's a really um, uh, a poor way uh, and a poor mechanism to, to try and to try and move things forward. And so, so in Canada, one of the big things, five-year grants was a big thing, but also um, the, the second biggest thing in, in in Australia is that you only have one grant cycle per year. So you apply for your grants in March. You don't find out until December for some unknown reason, um, and then you don't get it. You've got to wait a whole other year, and you've got to survive on that. So the rest of the world, a lot of times, there's multiple grant cycles, and so at least you could at least tr- you only lose six months of work or four months of work rather than a whole year's worth of work. And so that's a really um, a really tough situation. So when people start talking about our grant rate, we have we have ten percent funding rate. That's ten percent for the year. In Canada, they're about 12%, but they have two competitions a year. So it's 12% over two competitions. And so so the numbers, then you start looking at that, you're thinking, okay, then actually we are really, really struggling here. And so I think there's a lot of um, uh, a lot of issues, but the I think it's just a, a systemic problem. And I think really the change has to come from um, from above and has to be a major change because it's not going to change the way that it, that it works. Um, I think there's just so much... Um, uh, government interference. Mm-hmm. Uh, the NHMRC really is a government, is a government 
body. It's not an independent standalone institution. Um, like we complain about the CEO and Kelso about NHRCLC, but she has probably the toughest job I can imagine because she has really no power to do anything other than work for the minister. Um, and the minister decides if you get a grant. Minister has the ultimate pin on all of this stuff. So it's a really it's a real ingrained and meshed into the government. And so um, with the rest of the world, at least NIH and CIHR in Canada, they're more standalone institutions. They get their budget. Yep. They go off and they do their own stuff. They they control it. The minister will sign off on things, but they, they tell the minister when they're doing it, not the minister telling them when to do yep. it. So it's a really different sort of system right there. And, and that right there inherently makes it a political a political form yeah. and a political tool and that that really does not work well with science yeah Colby, we've only got a minute or so to go but um what are your reflections in terms of the impact on mental health of our researchers here versus mm-hmm. in canada because the one thing i'm seeing here is that you know the mental health of many of our researchers i mean going through yeah. a crushing system where your entire life's work towards a certain point in your career can be, be stripped away in these these grant yeah. cycles seems oh. to be just devastating to, to many people i mean is it similar in canada or it sounds like it's somewhat I, mediated i think i think it's similar but it, but it's similar but different in the sense that um in canada we have a lot fewer soft money positions mm. so if you work at a university you're paid by the university more, more, more and that's that's gross overlay simplization but if you're at a research institute you tend to be more on soft money but those positions that are getting your salary from your grants is very very common in australia so a lot of people um, that were even at work at the universities and research, they're dependent upon getting their grants for their salary. Yep. And that's probably the most stressful thing because then you have to work out everything you do has to be for you to get your salary for the next paycheck, right? And 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 it's, that puts even more stress on your family life and all that. And and the thing to remember is scientists are, are humans, right? These people are, are people with lives and families and trying to do this. And so when you're trying just to do stuff to get um, – uh, your next salary. You don't care about other people. You don't yeah. care about collaboration. You don't care about you. All you care about is getting your salary because you have to feed your family. And that just all of a sudden just destroys things. So in Canada, it was a lot better because if you worked at a university, you're paid by the university. And so you didn't ever have to find salary funding. You always had this grant. So so there's a lot less soft money mm. salary awards. So the government, so the funding for CHR, 90% of it, I would say, goes to grant funding. The yeah. salary component of that d- doesn't come in. It comes mostly from provincial bodies or state bodies um, uh, uh, yeah. is a comparison. So that stress of that, I think there's still that level of stress, but it's really a smaller percentage of the population. We're here, I would say the vast majority of people are living year to year or everyone three-year, four-year, five-year contracts and then not knowing that they have a job at the end of the year, especially when you don't find out until December 12th and that your contract runs out December 31st. Yeah. It's not. It's not yeah. a happy Christmas, and not a happy place to live. So, so that has a huge ramification for mental health. Yeah, people, for sure. Agreed. Colby, look, it's been great chatting to you. It's an area yeah. that you know we're both pretty passionate about, and we'll do what we can yeah. to to resolve it. Thanks so much for giving us those reflections on the Canadian model yeah, no. and so forth. Well, thanks, and, um, for, thanks for having me. And um, great to yeah. talk to you. And great to talk to you too. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Colby. Folks, that was yeah. Professor Colby Zaff from Monash University. We're going to take a break for some music and we'll be back in just a moment with our second guest for today. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. Yeah, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to 3 Triple R. I'm Dr. Shane. Online with us now is Dr. Susie She. We spoke to her a few weeks back. She's a senior lecturer in medical accelerator physics at the University of Melbourne in the School of Physics there. Welcome back, Susie. How are you going? Hello. Thank you. I'm going well. Thanks for having me back again. Good to have you back. You were talking about the July lectures in physics uh, the last time we spoke. You've done yours. Um, there's still three to go, yeah, or four to go. There's four to go, yeah, because there's five Fridays in July this year. So um, this next Friday we have uh, Duane Humachter who's speaking about Indigenous astronomy, science and truth-telling, which is going to be amazing. So there's still space for in-person and online. Right. Okay, so people just, um, if they Google July lectures in physics, University of Melbourne, they'll probably find it, I'm sure. Yeah, put put the year 2021 in, in the Google search as well because there's <laughs> been 53 years of them, so yeah. you may... You may land on the page of the videos of all the previous ones and sort of sign ups for this one. Yeah, did you? I remember the last time we spoke about this. Did you find out whether anyone has been to all fifty three in the audience? Oh, I haven't. I still need to search that. I think. Yeah. I think. Yeah, people who've been to a significant number. Yeah. So you got to give them. You got to give them something. You know, little Melbourne Uni token or something. I don't know. Give them something. A medal. Yeah. yeah. 
let them let them deliver their own lecture. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. They could give a lecture on the July lectures in physics and which ones interested them the most. That could be a bit harsh. Um, now, I wanted to talk about your work today because it's very interesting. And I suppose before we get to that, the um, the good news is for us here in Melbourne is you're you're probably stuck here now, um, given the changes in international travel because you were about to head back to to oxford for a while weren't you uh, last time we spoke yes. you were heading back to the uk mm-hmm. um and i still am <laughs> oh you still are good good okay. yeah, yeah i I, uh, I have my exemption to travel um i yeah i'm a dual citizen dual resident and have mm. been more in the uk than in australia because of my uh time in and my group in oxford so i, I actually will be heading back over there for a while, um, but that will be me uh, sort of winding up my research in Oxford, um, selling my house and, and then making the, the full move uh, to Melbourne to build up the research group here. Excellent. Now, you're working in the area of um, accelerated physics, so this is, is taking very, very small particles, sometimes individual you know, things like protons and, and so forth, and in particular, I, I suppose in your case, protons, and accelerating them to do some fancy stuff. My understanding is you've grabbed a whole of the gear and you've you've yanked it out of Europe and you've brought it here. Tell us a bit about what you've what you've got and what you're setting up. Yeah, so my 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 group have been collaborating um, for about ten years with CERN on some next generation particle accelerator technology um, that was developed by CERN for a next. For, for a potential future particle collider called the Compact Linear Collider, um, which is one of the options on the table for what comes after the Large Hadron Collider. And so it's called Compact, but uh, it's still 30 kilometres long, the proposed <laughs> collider. What's the, non, what's the non-compact version? So, so <laughs> uh, there's like 50 kilometre proposals as well. Okay. No, but the compact refers to the physical accelerating devices themselves, what we call the radio frequency cavities. So these are um, specially machined uh, devices which electromagnetic waves are set up in. Um, and as the particles travel through, the particles sort of ride the wave like a surfer on a water wave and gain energy as they go through. And the reason that this type of technology is called compact um, is because it uses a much higher frequency of electromagnetic wave than um, previous sort of instances have. Um, So normally we'd talk about three gigahertz, so three billion oscillations a second. This device or this equipment works at 12 gigahertz, so um, a a lot higher, and that directly translates into all the equipment being physically smaller. Mm. because it, it relates to the size of the, the standing waves in, in the cavity. Um, and so, so CERN developed all of this over, over many years and uh, it's still in development. That collider hasn't been built yet. But what we have is one of their so-called test stands, um, so $6 million worth of this very high-frequency, very high-power equipment, which has been shipped over during the pandemic and unloaded um, in Melbourne in January, which was quite an exercise. And uh, we are now constructing it in the basement lab of Melbourne Uni. Mm. Right, right under the coffee shop. Right under, the, yeah, the lawn where the coffee shop is at the, the Potter. Yep. 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 <laughs> now, your your area of interest, I suppose, is a little different um, these days to to what we often hear about with regards to particle accelerators, because we hear about CERN a lot, and we hear about the Large Hadron Collider, and we hear about exploring the new particles and so forth that we've found that you know the Higgs boson and so forth. And there was a lot of pomp and ceremony, rightfully, with regards to that, and Peter Higgs getting the Nobel Prize, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, it was a big it was a big deal. But what people don't hear about a lot is the other places where particle accelerators are in use because we hear about that big one all the time but in fact there are particle accelerators all over the place aren't there yes exactly um yeah it usually comes as a surprise to people when i tell them that uh, there are about fifty thousand particle accelerators in the world and uh, around half of them are used in industry and most of the other half are used in medicine very few, like only a handful, are actually used for, for particle physics. But, of course, that's where the technology is developed and where it comes from. Um, so your nearest particle accelerator is almost certainly in um, a nearby hospital uh, where it will be being used to treat cancer patients for radiotherapy. So that's a short, say, metre-long um, electron particle accelerator. And then the electrons hit a metal foil which produces X-rays 
and then we shape those x-rays um, depending on the angle that they're, they're coming into the patient in order to deliver the dose um, accurately contoured to the area that needs to be mm. needs to be treated. And, uh, yeah, there's about 15,000 of those worldwide. There's at least a couple of hundred um, just in Australia. Yeah. So that's one of the most common uses that people would come across. And it's, you know, radiotherapy treats around 40% of all successfully treated cancer cases. So it's an incredibly prevalent technology it's not at all not at all strange it's it's absolutely the go-to technology for doctors yeah. in, in hospitals yeah now I, I remember when i was um doing my phd we used to use proton beams so these are you know single protons single particles to carve out channels in pieces of glass to make basically pipes for light so make little channels that light could go through and mm. what, what's amazing me now is that these same proton beams you know, greatly more sophisticated versions <laughs> are being used in particular in children uh for, for cancer therapies and and my understanding i don't think it's there yet but we are getting one of these proton therapy systems in adelaide in australia is the first one in the country they're worth i think they're worth like a hundred million dollars but yeah. i mean i mean that's that's something that's quite an advance in terms of these you know these therapies for, for cancer yeah absolutely yeah it's it's um so there's a fundamental difference with how protons so heavy charged particles interact in tissue compared to x-rays or even even electrons that means that you can deposit dose very accurately deep inside the body without damaging as much healthy tissue on the way in um, and this has been known for quite a long time it was first proposed way back in 1946 by a guy called Robert Wilson um, who was working on the particle accelerators. And as soon as they had accelerators of high enough energy with protons, his idea was maybe this can be used for therapy. But it took many, many years and a combination of um, imaging technologies to be able to... So, so basically it's a sharper knife, right? And if you have a sharper knife, you need to see what you're doing more accurately. Mm. So, so it actually, in order to coalesce into a... a, a treatment which had um you know better much better clinical outcomes for patients it had to have a you know a much more sophisticated um version of, of you know the imaging and control and of course the technology itself is much bigger than the normal little radiotherapy machines so it's actually been in clinical trials and been in development and been in in normal usage um, throughout a, a lot of parts of the world for many decades now, um, both proton therapy and then um, carbon therapy as well, which is more common in, in Japan. Um, but we do see, you know, clinical advantage to treating patients, especially patients with deep-seated tumours and um, childhood, some childhood cases where, for example, you really don't want to deliver radiation to parts of the body that are healthy by accident. And this is a much more precise way of doing that. But yeah, it's it's big technology, um, and Australia uh, have been trying. There have been communities in Australia trying to get this here for many years, and it is, as you say, finally happening. Um, and they have broken ground on on the Bragg Centre in Adelaide. It's it's called that will be the first proton therapy centre in Adelaide, and then there is a um, sort of national coordination to and the proposal is that eventually we'll have four centers in order to treat um the population around the country uh the idea would be there'd be one in uh queensland probably brisbane one in um in melbourne and then one in sydney and the sydney one the proposal is quite special because it's it won't just be protons the idea is that that will have heavier ions as well and also be a research facility where the research will extend beyond just um, you know, research for cancer treatment, but into things like space radiation. Um, so that will really be a combined treatment and research centre, which uh, yeah, which is will be incredibly mm. valuable for Australia's research community as well as patients. Yeah, absolutely, Lyndon. <laughs> Hi, Suze. It's great to hear about your research. You can't see me, but hopefully you can hear me. Thinking about these great centres that are going to be built and the efficacy of the treatment that will be delivered by them and are already being delivered by these tools in hospitals, I'm wondering about their accessibility for people who live outside the CBD. You know, if you have to be... It's the same for all kind of cancer treatment, I suppose. But, I mean... Is there a possibility that this kind of equipment, maybe not the big things like the Bragg Centre, but the, the existing equipment, is, it, is there a chance for them to be put in regional, every regional hospital or are there are specific training and skills that's required for all the staff to be able to use them? I'm wondering about the spread across yeah, our wide country. Uh, 
Yeah, it's a really good question. So I, I should say that the, the proton systems, um, you know, are so new and so large that I, I that's that's nowhere near portable yet, right? And that that will be for specialized cases, up to about ten percent of cases, where that treatment has a better clinical outcome. But but what's interesting is to consider regular radiotherapy, which is you know which treats a large number of patients around Australia, and, and it is in in um, you know regional hub hospitals at least at, at the moment. Um, but obviously, yeah, it's very specialised. It's very high tech equipment, and so the the data shows that for every hundred kilometres uh, you live from one of these centres, your chance of accessing it or your probability of accessing it decreases by about ten percent. So if you live a thousand kilometres from um, a radiotherapy centre, but you need radiotherapy, uh, that's very, very difficult. Um, so in a, in a country as geographically dispersed as parts of Australia are and as geographically large as we are, um, that's very challenging. But, of course, there are other parts of the world um, where not only do they have geographical challenges, but they also have socioeconomic challenges in terms of actually having these systems in the first place. So... Um, by 2035, about 70% of all cancer cases in the world are going to be in low- and middle-income countries. And yet the vast majority of these systems, of course, are in high-income countries. Um, so there's, there's a kind of growing uh, challenge on our hands globally to treat cancer with these machines because they are designed for high-income country uh, clinical environments with, you know, very stable power supplies, all this stuff. And so there are projects starting to happen where people are thinking about, well, how can we make this technology more robust? How could we potentially make it portable um, to be able to sort of fly it into somewhere to treat a series of patients and, and then move it on to somewhere else? Um, so it's a very uh, interesting and rich uh, field of inquiry at the moment because there's, you know, when we... I'm involved particularly in an international collaboration called STELLA, which is called um, Smart Technology to Extend Lives with Linear Accelerators. And this is um, a collaboration uh, mostly between um, Ox Oxford and, and some UK universities and CERN and then about 24 different sub-Saharan African countries with medical experts there. Um, and before that collaboration started, we didn't have the data which showed us what was going wrong um, with these machines. So anecdotally, people were like, well, they break all the time and they're no good and we have lots of downtime and it's affecting our ability to treat patients. But no one could kind of tell what, you know, exactly what was going wrong with the technology. So part of my role in that collaboration has been to help actually gather that um, so that we can then go about the process of trying to potentially re-engineer the system uh, to make it more reliable. And if you can solve that problem for um in a low- and middle-income country environment, it means that you've also solved it for regional and rural areas and mm. high-income countries. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, such a, it's such a good good thing there, Susie. I mean, one of the things we've already seen here in Melbourne is the amazing work of the construction of the stroke ambulance, which is something that um, mm. I'm sure you've, you've heard of where, you know, back in the day, we the idea of putting a CT scanner, so essentially a, a scanner that takes many, you know, for people who are not aware, a scanner that takes many, many x-rays in slices, um, which is critically important when someone has a stroke and you need to know how to treat that stroke. But, you know, being able to do that on site at distance yeah. from hospitals, especially for certain patients that aren't, aren't able to be reached, you know, or, or gotten to a hospital quickly, mm. allows you to do the treatment in that very short window where you you can make a huge difference in stroke recovery if you act appropriately in a short window. And we've managed to get those things in the back of ambulances, which I find for anyone who's been in the back of an yeah. ambulance, and, you know, <laughs> I think unfortunately most of us have been in a few times, <laughs> not exactly a large space. Um, and if you've seen a CT scanner, if you've ever gone, you know, to a, a location where they've got one, you think, how the hell did they shove that thing in the back of an ambulance? Yeah. But they've managed to <laughs> manage to deal with both the weight, the size, the vibrations, all, all the issues that go along with yeah. that. So it seems seems very possible down the track that, you know, some of these, at least some of these acceleration sort of um, technologies will be able to, to get us into those small areas. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting because um, I feel like these projects with things like putting a CT scanner in, in, you know, in the back of an ambulance, these are great, like, 
projects for us to learn from to figure out how we could um, potentially make uh, radiotherapy, you know, the therapy side more accessible. By the way, you'd have to send a CT scanner as well, right? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah. As well as treat. One of the, um, one of the issues uh, w- with that actually is the pe- with the way we treat at the moment, the paradigm of radiotherapy is you usually have 25 uh, fractions. So the radiation is delivered. Um, you, you go in sort of once a day, Five, five days in the week over, say, four to five weeks um, to receive your treatment. So that that is probably one of the primary challenges is you can't just pop... It's not a single-shot thing. Um, so, But there are there is new research emerging um, that shows that actually if you deliver radiation very rapidly, uh, there's a, an effect that's been identified called the flash effect um, where it actually has a uh, sparing effect on healthy tissue to deliver radiation very, very rapidly. Um, now, obviously, it's very early days with that, but there are ideas emerging that one day we might be able to do radiotherapy in, say, a single session. And what we want to be able to do is be ready if that paradigm does uh, emerge, then we'd be ready with the equipment to go out and deliver it, right? Mm, yeah. <laughs> Um, Susie, just just to end, I think one of the things that you and I both as physicists have a, a particular view of, of radiation when we talk about it is, you know, types of particles, what they do, what they do to the surrounding tissues and so forth, that doesn't have that sort of negative connotation that mm. many in the popul- population would have with regards to, you know, stories of Chernobyl and, you know, all the different, you know, Hiroshima and Nagasaki and all the different terrible things that were done with regards to yeah. radiation in, in our history – what do we need to do in terms of that sort of communication package to to get across the fact that and I think your your description of you know a, a just sharper knife is what we're we're developing here something that's an mm. incredible tool for health and it doesn't have that negative um, negative aspect for us in fact it's it's one of the most positive things we'll, we'll have for cancer patients full stop yeah yeah it's a it's a really interesting challenge um, and in Australia especially there's uh, you know you mentioned any any words like nuclear or radiation mm. um, do elicit fear. I mean, for good reason. Um, w- with some of the history in of you know nuclear testing and things in in this country, um, but I think the story that a lot of people don't know is uh, is that story of the more positive uses of radiation. The other um, the other thing a lot of people are not aware of is that uh, radiation is all around us, right? Mm. I mean, when when it was discovered and when when um, radioactive elements were discovered in you know the early nineteen um, sorry the late nineteen hundreds early sorry early <laughs> late eighteen hundreds early nineteen yep. hundreds get that right um, <laughs> it was um, you know philosophically uh, incredible to see people manage to get their heads around the idea that nature is constantly changing. Mm. Right now, that that doesn't sound like such a dramatic statement until you realise that people, sort of since the dawn of time, have thought that atoms were constant and not changing, and and radiation or the idea of the idea of radioactivity changed all of that, um, and and what we've managed to do since then is be able to harness that natural change of elements at the most fundamental level um, to do things that help society, but. A lot of people don't realise that that is happening all the time anyway, right? Radiation is all around us. Uh, you know, the potassium in bananas is, you know, a very small proportion of it is radioactive potassium. It has absolutely no uh, negative um, impact on your health. In fact, the res- there's a research project, which I, I want to mention because it's really fascinating. Um, one of the things with low levels of radiation especially, and a lot of people think that actually the right level of radiation is zero, but the amount of radiation that we're all exposed to is not zero, right? Because there's there's radiation from the rocks, from you know everything, from you and I. We you know have a certain amount of radiation that we're walking around emitting every day, um, and so we don't actually know biologically what the impact would be on people, on genetics, on biology, if they were in a zero radiation environment. Right. Yep. But now we have a chance to test that because we have these deep underground laboratories which block out all of the background radiation. So there's experiments happening in Canada in these deep underground laboratories. And the initial results show that uh, we need a certain amount of radiation for cells, for you know genetics, for all this stuff to um, evolve properly and for, 
for organisms to uh, kind of do what they do. Mm. So I, I find that fascinating that that inherent change in yep. atom is linked to the inherent change in species yep. in some way. Well, Susie, look, it's been great talking to you again. Uh, good luck with your trip back to the UK and Oxford, and hopefully Thank we'll have you. you back here in Australia doing all this amazing work in particle physics uh, very soon and miniaturizing those uh, you know big accelerators into something, I don't know, size of a shoebox, or we'll, we'll give you that target and see how you go. <laughs> we'll try, we'll try. <laughs> Do your best. Thanks so much, Susie. Good to talk to you. Folks, that was Dr. Susie Shee from the University of Melbourne School of Physics. We're going to take a very quick break, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, vaccines. Couldn't get away from it. Have to deal with it. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. Welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Triple R. It's Dr. Shane here. I just thought I'd make a few comments before we end the show with regards to vaccinations because I'm being hit hard on Twitter with uh, requests for information. So getting forth. hundreds of questions every day, yep. Shane. What do I do? What do I do? What do That's I do? why Ali oh. and I so, yeah, Tell us what to well, do. Well, let me, let, me, let me give you some thoughts. So first of all, everyone's heard about this new Delta variant, which is, which is pretty scary. It's highly infectious. It's more infectious than previous versions. We know, and we knew this about previous ones as well, that's transmitted using aerosol transmission so that's very small droplets that no 1.5 meters will not save you and apparently in seconds you can be infected if you're near someone um it's become the dominant version around the world very in, in certain countries very quickly in particular uk and india so this is where you know the old variation of the virus gets replaced by a new one a new one that's more transmissible but more deadly? Well, it, it may. We're not sure about that quite yet. But if you have more people infected, it can be less deadly and kill more people. So that that's always the the big worry there. Um, and it's even a big problem, of course, in countries that have huge vaccination rates compared to us. So, for example, in the UK and Israel, I mean, you know, Israel's sitting at sixty percent second dose Pfizer vaccinations. And they're seeing a massive uptake in, you know, infections as a result of this. And a lot of it's in kids as well. Mm. So, you know, look out. Um, 50% of people are vaccinated in the UK. You know, it's a, it's a pretty big number. They're starting to talk about third dose vaccinations in the UK. So giving people that third dose as that additional booster, you know, as they, children they're going as through. Well? Um, they, they're getting, we're getting to that, but mm. not quite. With, with, the, with the Delta, you said more infections, but is that translating to more hospitalizations in places like Israel? So what they're seeing is, and remember the hospitalizations dropped very dramatically mm. as they started vaccinating their population. That's mm. starting to come up again. Yeah, okay. Um, so, you know, people are getting sick, which yeah. is a problem. Of course, you know, if you're vaccinated, you, you're you do tend to be um, far more protected against that than, you know, and that protection is quite substantial. It's quite amazing. So, you know, we've got two real vaccines we're looking at here in Australia at the moment, which is pretty, a pretty substantial um, offering. You know, we're very lucky compared to some countries. Um, AstraZeneca, you know, otherwise known as the Oxford vaccine, you know, like Oxford, <laughs> everyone loves Oxford, right? Um, we were pretty excited about this, you know, last year because we could make it locally. There was no international problems with us getting, getting control of it. You could ship it in a bloody esky. You know, and we were scared shitless of Pfizer because it had to be shipped at minus 70 degrees and we couldn't make it look. You know, we're all talking about, oh, we should have bought the... So, well, actually, you know, a year ago, we were we were pretty happy with the Esky version and, and it was Oxford. Everyone loves Bring Oxford. Bring your Esky. What's that? Yeah, uh, what's uh, that campaign? Bring your Esky. Esky the original Victoria, unless it's filled with yeah, vaccine. There's, and there's two, you know, there's two different sort of... Um, Scenarios with these, AstraZeneca, of course, the second dose is sort of eight to 12 weeks. Pfizer sort of three to six weeks. They're sort of the recommendations, um, which means there's a gap for you. You know, you can't sort of say, oh, oh, everyone's getting infected today. I'll go and get vaccinated today and I'll be protected. No, no, no. That's not how it works. You've got you to gotta wait quite a while. So you can't do it straight away. The two vaccines do have different efficacy against, you know, ability so that to, to reduce these problems for this new variant. So there is a bit of variation between the two. Pfizer's a bit better. Um, but both of them are pretty crap after, I'd say, after dose one. So don't think you can get dose one like we were hearing earlier on and get really good control. Um, you're going to need to get both doses. Now, there's some a lot of stuff going around about kids at the moment, which I think is really important. Your parents freak out. I've got kids. I freak out. Um, you know, Pfizer's been okay down to age 12. Um, below that, there's really no data that can to help us see what you know how safe it is. Um, AstraZeneca, my understanding is, is only down to 18. Again, more data you know coming out. Um, there's a lot of kids out there. Some of them probably listening to have compromised immune systems. So the idea that we'll just let this run through the the school and kid community and you know hope for the best because they don't get really sick. 
I'm sorry, that's not good enough. There's a lot of kids with compromised immune systems for a variety of reasons for whom this could be really, really dangerous. And that's, you know, I'm not willing to put my kids on the on the slab for that kind of experiment that someone might publish in a, a journal a year from now and go, oh, shit, we should have made a different choice. Um, the virus does affect kids, and there's a lot of stuff coming out with regards to things like, you know, you've heard about long COVID, and this is going to be something that, if you think about it, you know, Chronic illnesses, my goodness, they cost people their entire lives. They cost the economy a fortune. There's every reason to to steer clear of any chronic illness that you can. So to me, I've been less concerned as a person with regards to COVID itself and more concerned about this idea of a potential chronic illness with this long COVID. And I know a couple of people have had that. They've got pretty nasty symptoms nine months out. So yeah, it's it's rarer, you know, but it's there. It's non-zero. So, you know, people have to be thinking about that. Um, you know, we saw in the UK when the UK removed the mask requirements in schools, there was a massive rapid uptake in infections amongst kids because, you know, you remember COVID's everywhere in the UK, so it's, it's much more prominent. And we have the privilege of no cases here, except, sorry, Sydney, if you're listening, we realise it's difficult up there, but we have a bit of privilege at the moment because we can make choices based on, no cases, which is, you know, but the way, you know, Haley, Haley and I and, um, and Lyndon would talk about this before. And I said, the last thing you want to try and do here, folks, is insure your house once it's already on fire. And vaccines are insurance policies for the future. But you've got to wait. And it's like, it's like when you get health insurance, you know, there's a waiting period. You don't get to use it on day one. You get to use it on day, you know, what, 60 or something, if yeah. you're lucky. So, you, you do you do have to think ahead. Yeah, and have we seen? I mean, even just with Sydney, it's only what, when did this all start? Two two weeks ago. Yeah. I mean, but when so, you have an insurance officer to run with that analogy a little bit longer, that's saying don't get insurance because there's a small chance that mm-hmm. the insurance might set your house on fire. Yeah, a very small chance. A very um, small chance, and that's like literally someone rubbing the sticks together of the insurance policy and hoping it'll catch a light. Very small chances, but I think this is where you've got it. Everyone has to make their own decisions. So he, here's my sort of final piece there. In terms of Pfizer, get it now if you can. If you have access, just go and get it. Don't wait. It's important and get it. And there are risks with Pfizer as well. They're minimal, just like AstraZeneca, um, but there are risks. But get it. Get it if you can. With regards to AstraZeneca, you know, it's it's a bit longer to wait. And I've heard some people say, oh, but Pfizer's all coming in, in September. If you think that you're getting that in September, in given the rate with which we roll out vaccines in this country, all of them, think again. I'd be thinking May. Um, <laughs> even if we get a whole shit ton of them in September, they're not going to be available. I was just about to say, geez, you've done so well not to swear, no, Dr. Shane. sorry, but it's, you're not going to get it in September necessarily. Some people will be prioritised and they should be, but most people will get it a bit later. But here's, here's just a number for you. On, on the 18th of April, Taiwan had one new case, right? A few weeks later, on the 22nd of May, they had 723 cases. Mm. This is what this new variant's doing. This is how quickly it's moving. So insuring against the future is the key to vaccination. You've got to have the discussion with your GP if you're concerned. And if you have a good GP, they'll give you it in a, in a, in a proper way. And, and then you can walk out hopefully informed. And I realise that's difficult for some people, but this is this is something that really matters. And ensuring against the future is what vaccines mm. is all about. So um, I, I do want to thank two people, though, who, you know, over Twitter have given me a lot of information or help with this over the last few days. Margie Danchin, who I, you know, just think is the best communicator on vaccines there is from the Children's Hospital, but also a GP named Catherine Orr, who sent me some stuff overnight, who I don't know her, but very smart. If she's your GP, you're lucky, because I think that's the sort of discussion you want to be having. But, uh, yeah, get yourself vaccinated if you can, folks. It's, it's very important. Good insurance policy. We're going to run. Dr. Ailey, great having you in the studio. Thank you so Absolutely. much, Dr. Shane. Great to be here. Dr. Lyndon, good to see you again great as well. Great to see you, Dr. Shane. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.